When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Alice Roberts is an academic author and broadcaster who specialises in human anatomy, physiology, evolution, archaeology and history. If you're a UK listener, you've probably seen her on Time Team or one of the many other TV shows she's hosted, like The Incredible Human Journey or Origins of Us. Her latest book is Buried, an alternative history of the first millennium in Britain. She joined Luke Naylor Perrett to tell us more. Good evening, Alice. How, how are you doing? Good evening, Luke. Hello, everybody. So firstly, congratulations. The book is beautifully written. And aside from the final chapter, which is more of a discussion, each chapter is structured as a series of almost detective stories. You know, something is found in the ground, occasionally you're sort of seen abseiling off a cliff, and you're called to investigate. So I thought it would be really fun to dive into that structure a little bit and, and run down that mystery rabbit hole together, if that's okay with you. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, and, and that is how I approach the subject, because the book is about burial archaeology, and I suppose it, it is about my own kind of area of research, which is biological anthropology. I'm a human bones expert. So I start off, you know, very often my engagement with an archaeological site might be on site. So I might be there as part of the excavation team. But more often I pick up the pieces afterwards, literally, <laughs> and get boxes of skeletons sent to me. Um, sometimes I'm dealing with recently excavated remains and sometimes I'm looking at museum archive material that's you know they've been dug up maybe hundreds of years ago and we're kind of revisiting it but yeah it is there's something quite forensic about it and it is there is detective work involved so you're gradually kind of making your observations and and putting the story together so i mean at that moment when when you're sitting in your office and you're surrounded by bones or books or whatever and you get a call and someone says, you know, we've got this, we found this this skeleton uh, or, or there's this archive that we need you to check out. Do you still get excited? It's really exciting because it starts with a mystery and I and I love that. So there's always a mystery, you know, whatever, whatever you're looking at, there, there's always information that you're going to be the first person to have found out that information, to have extracted that information from those remains. And then sometimes there are mysteries that you keep going back to. And one of the ones in the book that I've kept going back to in my head over the years was actually the very first time team dig that I ever went on. So it was back in 2001. So it was my introduction to tele- you know, archaeology on television as well. So I was a young academic working at Bristol University at the time. 
and Time Team had asked me to write some bone reports for them previously. So I'd, I'd received the bones in the lab and I'd, I'd written up the reports because they had to write reports on everything that they that they dug up. So they'd need coin experts, pottery experts, human bones experts to help write those reports. And then 2001, they said, come along to this dig. And, you know, you can do a bit of digging as well, because they knew I had some digging experience, but also start to look at the bones on site. And I said, well, is, you know, is it worth my while? Because I'm a busy academic. I can move my teaching around a bit. But are you sure that there are going to be human bones? And they said, well, it is a cemetery excavation. So, <laughs> so I went along to that one. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was a, an early medieval cemetery site with lots of double burials. And that was always a bit curious. And we were left wondering why there were so many double burials. And in fact, one triple burial, two young men and a child buried with them. And they very much definitely were in the same grave. You, you have to be careful about that when you're digging what you think are multiple burials, that you're not just looking at graves which have been dug very close together, but you're actually looking at people who've been put in the same pit in the ground. And these definitely had been. So your mind immediately runs to perhaps conflict, victims of conflict or disease. And I can then look at the bones and try to look for you know, evidence of violent injury, for instance, on the skeletons and evidence of diseases. The trouble with diseases that kill you quickly is that they don't leave any mark on the bones at all. And back in 2001, that was kind of where we had to leave it. But then I'm now involved with an amazing project at the Crick Institute in London, where Pontus Skoglund's lab have got this project, which is called A Thousand Ancient Genomes. And they are busy sampling. In fact, they've done all the sampling now. So they're sequencing, fully sequencing, A Thousand Ancient British Genomes. And I've been involved with that project since the beginning and wrote about the start of that project in the, in the previous book, Ancestors, as well. And when I was revisiting the site of Bremer with all these multiple burials, I thought, ah, oh, are we now in a time where we might be able to solve this? Shall we go back and sample those bones that I looked at 21 years ago and see if we can get to the bottom of this? So that's what we've done. And Pooja Swali, who's working in Pontus's lab, is looking particularly, her, her aspect of the project is looking at the metagenomes, looking at the disease genomes. So she's busy trying to see if there's anything that might explain all of those multiple burials, whether a pathogen is the culprit. So yes, these, I mean, these mysteries continue and there's, you know, there's still, there's still mysteries hanging around and we still haven't quite got to the bottom of that one. I mean, that is, that is so exciting. Incidentally, do, do you know when you're going to find out whether there was a pathogen? Mm. I don't know when I'm going to find out. and I don't know if I'm going to find out. I hold out hope. I'm holding out hope. When I was revisiting that site and looking at the pictures of it, there were a couple of really curious things. There are multiple burials that are very well furnished. So it's not like these people have been thrown into pits in a hurried way. You know, it doesn't look like just rapid, quick disposal of bodies in a way you might do if you were worried about catching a disease from them. So I think at the time we thought, well, maybe this, you know, maybe that's a sign that this isn't a, a cemetery that could have, could have people in it that, that died of a particular pathogen. But... In the last few years, there's been a cemetery site called Edicts Hill in Cambridgeshire, which has been reinvestigated again. So it's a site that was dug a few decades ago, and it's been reinvestigated because we have these great new tools like ancient DNA available now. And that site has proved to contain Yersinia pestis DNA. Yersinia pestis is the pathogen that causes plague. So it's the very first evidence that we've got of sixth century plague in Britain. 
We didn't know before that. And that paper was published in 2018. We had no idea before that, that the plague reached Britain in the sixth century. We knew it had spread across Europe, other parts of Europe. So we we had very good um, historical documentation of what is unfortunately called the Justinianic plague because it happened during the reign of the Emperor Justinian. Um, It's not his plague. Um, (laughs) I think he'd be very unhappy about being remembered for that. Uh, He did suffer from it, actually, and recovered from it. But we we knew that that plague had ripped through the Byzantine Empire. We've only known more recently, of course, what the pathogen was that caused that. So we, you know, we've we've got evidence from um, other places in Europe that that actually it definitely was Yersinia pestis. And then in 2018, as I said, we suddenly realised, even though we've got no documentary evidence of this happening, that that plague actually reached as far as Britain. So what I'm wondering about is whether Bremer, which is also sixth century, is another Justinianic plague cemetery. So the bones are very crumbly. And when you've got crumbly bones, you're always a bit nervous about the the crumbliness of the the DNA contained within those bones. And I spoke to Pooja just the week before last, and she said that she hasn't managed to, to find any Yersinia pestis DNA yet but she hasn't managed to find much DNA at all. So it may be just that it's not surviving. She does have one last tool up her sleeve, though, which is using a specific probe for Yersinia pestis. Uh, So rather than sequencing and then seeing what you've got, going in in a bit more of a targeted way. So if we've got some samples which, which maybe are better preserved than others, if her DNA probe works, we might be able to detect Yersinia pestis DNA if it's there. It may be that at the end of the day, we just have to retreat and leave that as a mystery. But I'm st- I've still got my fingers crossed. So you mentioned just there the, the crumbly bones and, and that sort of not knowing, which seems to be a big theme of the book. You know, there's, a, there's an answer just beyond your fingertips. Something I didn't realise, for example, is that there's this sort of indeterminate gender and, and, and the body. So, so sexing bodies, you know, male and female, let's, let's imagine you've been called out to a field and there's some bodies in a grave. How do you work out whether something is biologically male or female? What, and what's the hit rate? You know, you speak very politically in the book about especially grave goods and the ways in which that is not particularly useful sometimes and it's misguided archaeologists in the past. How do you work out that biological sex? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it kind of is political because it's a live, you know, it's a very kind of live debate in contemporary society. But I, I, my approach to it is just to be very objective about it. You know, I'm a scientist at the end of the day. So one thing is we cannot fall into the old antiquarian trap of going, oh, there are beads in this grave. It must be a woman. And I talk about that in Ancestors because in the 19th century, when the Reverend William Buckland excavated the earliest grave in Britain, the Red Lady of Paviland, he originally looked at those bones and thought that he was looking at a male skeleton and then changes his mind. And history does not record why he changed his mind. But I suspect it might be because that individual was buried with lots of ivory artefacts that he later interpreted as jewellery. And he couldn't possibly condone the idea that a man could be buried with jewellery. And so the red man of Paviland becomes the red lady. And we still call him the red lady of Paviland. His skeleton is undeniably male. I mean, it's a, it's a very it's not a probable male. It's a very definitely male skeleton. So when I'm looking at skeletons, obviously there's no soft tissue most of the time. And so you are just left looking for sex differences between males and females in the skeleton. And 
that is tricky throughout most of the skeleton. Through most of the skeleton, you're looking at size differences, really. So differences in the size of joints, that sort of thing. Differences in robusticity. So where muscles might attach to bones will generally be more prominent and, and roughened and, and, and maybe even ridged um, in, in a male skeleton. But that's on average. So, you know, that's that's mm. across the whole population you're going to see that there are certainly going to be individuals, um, you know, there are going to be male individuals who are much less muscled um, and so much more gracile. So it is a, it's not, yeah, it, it, it isn't a hundred percent. And there are always going to be skeletons that you're, that you're left wondering about what I'm looking at in the skeleton doesn't fit all of the features that I look at, they don't fall into one of two binary categories. So it's not like a presence or an absence of a, of a sign. It's actually shape. And the shapes vary on a spectrum. So a good example of that is in the pelvis. And the pelvis is the is the most sexually dimorphic bit of the body for obvious reasons, because it's the bit that's most associated with reproduction. In a female body, it has to accommodate the birth canal. So the female pelvis tends, again, on average, to be wider than a male pelvis. And that means when I'm looking at individual bones, any notches or curves will be wider in a female pelvis compared with a male. And there's this one in particular, which is usefully quite well-preserved usually at the back of the bone, where it's normally quite chunky, where the pelvis attaches to the sacrum. And it's called the greater sciatic notch. And that is a kind of wide open C-shape in a female pelvis. And then it goes all the way to being a J-shape in a male, quite a narrow J-shape. But you see everything in between. So you'll see a greater sciatic notch that falls right in the middle where you're just you cannot say. And and I actually, you know, we, biological anthropologists have these different categories. You know, we'll look at those shapes and we'll say any particular feature might fall into definite male, probable male, indeterminate, probable female, definite female. And then what we'll do is we'll look at a whole range of features and then come to a kind of consensus view based on what all of those features are telling us. And sometimes we might be able to say very definitely, this is absolutely definitely a, a female or absolutely definitely a male. Sometimes we might be saying it's probable. Sometimes we, we just have to admit that we cannot tell. And that's really important because, you know, trying to make the diagnosis one way or the other means that we're, we're actually quite likely to be wrong. So it's best just to say, actually, on what I can observe, I've got to reserve judgment. Now, again, this is where my geneticist friends come in and go, well, hang on a minute, we can do that for you. And they don't even need the pelvis. You know, they could have a tiny fragment of a finger bone, which I would be completely, you know, I, there is no way I would be able to sex a phalanx of a, of a skeleton. And they can take a DNA sample and they can look for the presence of a Y chromosome or the presence of two X chromosomes. And so they can they can tell uh, biological sex and so they can do that more broadly and what, what what we've got now is very good agreement between biological anthropological um methods such as i use and the methods that the the dna basically that the geneticists are using so it means that when i can't tell we can trust what the geneticists are saying and we've got there's an example in the book actually of, of scremby where we've got lots of Anglo-Saxon burials. And actually there, um, we've got a very, very good matching between what the osteologist said about, about the distribution of sex in that cemetery and what the, what the DNA tells us. So that's great. And actually what we've also got in that cemetery is very good correlation between what you might assume to be female gendered grave goods, so things like beads and brooches, and then with the males, um, things like spears and, uh, uh, and shields. But it's not always the case and we shouldn't assume it's always going to be the case. 
There's one particular occasion in the book that really struck me about uh, cruciform brooches, you know, little, little brooches that were traditionally female grave goods, but are occasionally found on male skeletons. And that is just completely tantalizing, you know, whether gifts from from mothers or, or daughters or wives, did they get carried down by a matriarch? Potentially, did these skeletons identify in a way that would be perceived as as womanly or, or feminine? There's just never going to be a right answer there, is there? Yeah. And there's also that thing. I mean, I know we're talking about, we're just into the historical period, but there's a lot about that kind of early medieval culture that we don't know. We don't know a lot about it. You know, we haven't got a lot of detailed insight into it. You know, we, we do have written history from that period, but it is, it's patchy. And I think we have to be all the time. And it's not just, it's not being politically correct. It's not being woke. It's, we have to just go, right, we can't impose our ideas about sex and gender on the past. We can't just assume that, you know, that there are going to be two genders in that society. We can't assume that that culture recognises two genders. They might recognise more. You know, we we know of contemporary societies around the world that recognise more than two genders. So we've got to be really careful about imposing any sort of ideas of our own on the past. We've got to try to let the evidence speak for itself. Let's stick with that evidence speaking for itself. In keeping with the bones, one of the most remarkable things working through the chapters is this idea that you can see how someone lived, that that you can see whether they have jaw pain, how tough their lives were. You know, there's a moment where you're staring at a skeleton and you give this diagnosis about how this person had an abscess and then they started eating on the left-hand side of their face and potentially some of them had osteoarthritis. And you're quite clear in the book that you that you don't believe in an afterlife. You, you say that it, quote, uh, may be a comforting fiction and that's okay. I don't believe in the idea of death, but I feel a real connection with that person. Could you just speak about how you connect with those bodies in the ground? That sometimes they're just bones, you know, they're just bleached depending on how cremated they are. Uh, and then other times they're human beings who had all this pain and, and had these lives and these emotions. How do you maintain both that distance and then that connection? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's a um, it's a fascinating kind of philosophical question, I think, because I am a humanist and I don't I don't believe in life after death because we don't have any evidence for any any life after death at all. So it seems most reasonable to me to assume that there isn't any and to live your life as though there isn't any rather than thinking I've got to live my life as though there might be something happening after it. Um, And I think that we can kind of create meaning within our own lives in that way. So that's the kind of, I suppose, that's the kind of humanist perspective on it. A really important part of humanism, though, is respect for other belief systems, other cultures, and and secular tolerance. You know, secularism in the true sense of the word means a respect for for other people's um, beliefs and not, you know, not trying to impose your your beliefs on other people. And I think that's important to bear in mind when we're when we're looking at the past as well, that, you know, we're seeing we're seeing really interesting cultures. And I think in a lot of cases, certainly ideas about life after death. I mean, the Roman pipe burial, where there's a pipe going to the surface of the ground, and clearly that's designed for wine or possibly blood to be poured down the pipe to the person who's in the canister, the cremated remains. So presumably that's motivated by some kind of idea about life after death. Although I'm, I also say in the book that we have to think about the diversity of beliefs that would undoubtedly have existed in the past. And there probably would have been people at that man's funeral who perhaps believed in 
the life after death of that individual in some quite tangible way. Other pe- for other people for whom it was it was somehow metaphorical, but the ritual still made sense. And undoubtedly, there would have been people who thought it was all a bit of nonsense. I mean, you know, this is we don't often talk about that. I don't think when we're when we're looking at rituals in the past, but we know that there are rituals that we carry out in modern society today that we kind of just you know we either just go along with, or you know, as a community, if you think about a community of people going to a funeral, all, all those people don't have the same ideas about what what is going on. And, you know, what happens at that moment of death? And I, th- and I think that we have to then go back. Right, th- so this would have been similar in the past. There would have been diversity of belief. There might be historical texts saying this is what we believe. But actually what we believe as a society at any one point is, is actually really diverse. So I think that's that's an important point. In terms of me engaging with the with the bones, I mean, I'm a medic originally. So there's a kind of deep respect for even though even though the person's long since gone, this was a human being. Uh, and I think that, you know, that is really important when we're dealing with archaeological human remains, that they're excavated in a respectful way, that they're excavated individually and not just kind of scooped up. And that actually I see the scientific process of analysing the bones as, as part of the respectful way of dealing with the, with the dead. And I suppose what I'm doing in some ways is recovering those identities and and thinking about those identities. And there are, there are some stories in the book about people who I think are largely forgotten in our histories and, uh, you know, kind of passed over, whether those are people who die young or echelons of society that don't get much written about them. And again, archaeology is a way of, there's a bit of leveling going on. I think we can, we can look at those unrecorded lives through the, the physical remains. And that's such a lovely way of putting it. And uh, that definitely comes across in the way that you wrote. Staying on the topic of respecting other people's beliefs, there's there's quite a, a funny, you know, uh, heartwarming moment, I think, when, when you're excavating an old churchyard at White Sands Bay and a choir turn up and they sing some hymns. Taking that a step further, have you ever run into resistance about exhuming bodies, either from the church or or elsewhere? Is that ever something you've had to deal with, you know, protests? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I mean, that uh, the White Sands Bay Cemetery, I thought was there's something wonderful about that very, very early churchyard, you know, probably like 7th century churchyard. And in fact, it's a cemetery that predates the chapel there. So it's not even really a churchyard. And it's being excavated because it's eroding out of the cliffs. So again, I think you know it's a respectful thing to do to to try to understand these people and to recover those remains rather than to just let let them be washed away. And you know, people will have different views on that. And it's important. What's important is that we talk about it and we have conversations about it. And that you know, when when sites are excavated, the the modern community perspective is is taken into account as well. And um, yeah, I just thought it was funny that they're there singing hymns in English, and I wondered what those what those Welsh forebears would have thought of that. Um, those early, and they uh, they're very early Christians as well. They've got um, stones with crosses, quite crude crosses, carved into them. Um, so there's there's that continuity of Christianity, but a very kind of I suppose a, a Victorian notion of Christianity and English hymns and all of that, which they wouldn't have recognised at all. So yeah, interesting, interesting kind of contrast, but but continuity as well. Uh, in terms of in terms of resistance to, I suppose, what I do and to and to archaeology and particularly digging up human remains, I'm always really careful to say that there's a big difference between 
archaeologists today and antiquarians, for instance, of the 19th century, who would go around the landscape looking out and going, oh, that looks like a Neolithic long barrow. Let's go and dig it up. There's a Bronze Age barrow. Let's go and stick a hole in it and see what's in it. Um, we don't tend to do that anymore. And I think that um, Historic England would take a very dim view <laughs> if we did. <laughs> um, so most of the burials that come to light now are actually found by mistake. Uh, so a, a lot of them are, are, are unanticipated when there's development taking place, for instance. And, and then archaeologists are brought in to excavate those remains and to do that in a respectful way sometimes they are anticipated and there's a cemetery in the way of of modern development and I don't think we should be too I suppose squeamish or nervous about moving cemeteries certainly we don't see any of that in the past you know if you look at medieval churchyards the latest people that go into a medieval churchyard are the other kind of pristine nicely laid out graves and they've simply pushed the remains of other people out of the way to make room for that last grave. So you'd see that in these kind of overcrowded medieval cemeteries. So it's, I see what we're doing now is only a kind of um, extension of what's always happened, really. And again, I think it's, you know, there's, there's different ways of doing it. So you, can, you could get a cemetery clearance company and come and just remove the bones, or you could do it archaeologically, which is, which is more respectful. And you learn about the people at the same time as doing that. So it is very thoughtful. In the previous book, I talk about the Amesbury Archer. He's a you know famous Bronze Age burial from Amesbury, quite close to Stonehenge. And there was a big English heritage consultation about what should happen to his remains because there were some groups who were suggesting that he should be reburied and that's what he would have wanted. And it's like, of course, we don't know what he would have wanted because he died four and a half thousand years ago and we're not able to ask him. And it may be that he would be much happier that his remains are on display at Salisbury Museum and that people, you know, many thousands of people go on pilgrimage to go and see him. You know, that might have been that might have been a much better thing for him than being forgotten in a field yeah. somewhere. Yeah, he's, he's a celebrity. Exactly. And the way he was buried suggests that he had celebrity status in his day um, and he now has recovered that celebrity status. <laughs> but I think as well, we can't just you can't just ignore people's opinions so so English Heritage did quite a wide-ranging consultation public consultation on what people felt would be the right thing to do and the most respectful thing to do and I worked on a medieval uh, a group of skeletons actually the very first group of skeletons I worked on when I started doing osteology which was a group of medieval skeletons from Barton on Humber that the amazing paleopathologist Juliet Rogers who I studied under Uh, was looking at and she was looking at patterns of arthritis in the medieval period and that's kind of what got me hooked on this subject to begin with but what happened to these remains I think is quite interesting because while I was working on them they were kept in boxes in the basement of Bristol Royal Infirmary and um, you know we kept them all separate so they were all kept as individuals but then they went up back up to Barton-on-Humber and they are now kept in a in an ossuary which is a consecrated ossuary so that kind of resolves the, I, I suppose, the church's needs, but they're still available for research. That's actually, um, so, so, so you mentioned the antiquated ideas of the collectors and the hobbyists. And I'd say that the picture in general that, that you draw is, is one of sort of very scientific and carefully thought out industry, you know, bioanthropology, paleontology, archaeology. But there is a moment in which one of your colleagues, Phil Harding, uh, 
you and he uh, ender dig and then he runs around the field sewing metal washers over the field to make sure that that metal detectorists don't come and, and dig again and i just thought that's a reminder that there are lots of people out there with metal detectors in the rain and anoraks and, and there's still a very strong amateur culture out there and you know as, as a professional i get the sense that you kind of love it and hate it in the book in general yeah, I think it's not it that I love or hate. There are um, many individuals who do it incredibly responsibly. So there are there are lots of people out there who are incredibly responsible about their detecting, and they work closely with the Portable Antiquities Scheme. And if you you know if people are interested in this and they start doing it, make that contact early. So contact your local museum, find out who your local PAS officer is, and there's a, they are fines liaison officers, flows. Uh, and they're brilliant people because they will, you know, they'll help you with what you find. They're, they're not there to be obstructive. And I think that we should see, you know, we, we should have a, a see a kind of um, a, a common purpose and, 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 and work together. And we do see, you know, we uh, actually lots of the sites that I talk about in the book were discovered by very responsible metal detectorists. So mm. the site in, in Clamber de Goch in, in Anglesey was discovered by um, Archie Gillespie, uh, he found a Viking Age coin on a potato field and reported it to the National Museum of Wales. And that turned into this dig, which, you know, went on every summer for more than 10 years. Bremer itself was discovered by um, Steve Bolger, who was metal detecting and found this incredible brass bucket, a Byzantine bucket, and again, reported it. And that led to the to the whole excavation. And then what brings the whole thing into disrepute is people who go out at night and dig holes in scheduled monuments and sell things on the black market. Um, yeah. And unfortunately that does happen, but it is illegal. <laughs> so, you know, is it, there's a, there, are, there are different sides to it, but it's very much, there's a, there's a legal side to it, which, which helps archeology, span which is part of archeology. span And then there's an illegal side of it, which um, just shouldn't be happening. Okay, audience, take that as your PSA. Do not do anything illegal after listening to this. Um, so you, you mentioned that the boxes were stored down uh, in the hospital, the sort of bowels of, of the hospital. And there's this beautiful uh, part of the book, uh, probably the chapter that I like the most uh, on, on a villa. Could you speak about that moment that, you know, you pick up this this tiny little cigar box filled with even tinier little bones. Could you just explicate that story a little bit you know what are some of the theories surrounding it uh, and just a trigger warning for everyone we're going to be talking about the deaths of infants for the next 10 or so minutes so if that's not for you just just skip ahead uh, and uh, and come back so uh alice take us to that moment the, the cigar box the little bones what's the story there yeah we are going to be talking about infant deaths and also infanticide so if that's difficult for people come and join us again in 10 minutes or so it was actually quite difficult for me when I covered that story. It was the first shoot on the first series of Digging for Britain, which I can't quite believe. That was back in 2010. And I had just had my first baby. And I was I was traveling around the country with my husband and my tiny baby. So about, she was about five, five or six weeks old, I think, when we started filming. And I would go and film for the morning and then meet up with my husband and her at lunchtime and breastfeed her and then go off for the afternoon and do some more fil filming and then uh, meet up with them again at the end of the afternoon. So it was, it was an incredible experience and it worked as well. It was a really interesting time. I met up with Tori Herridge at the weekend, actually. We were down in Lyme Regis unveiling the new Mary Anning statue and she had a very similar experience filming Britain at Low Tide when she, she took her baby with her too. 
and it's, a, it's probably the only time that television actually works with family life a lot of the time it's, it can be quite lonely in terms of family life and you're away from your family a lot but when you've got little babies you can actually take them with you so I was there with my baby and then I got off for a morning uh, to go and do this filming and uh, I was looking through those little cigar boxes which were uh, which contained the remains that uh, had been collected from the site of Eugen Roman Villa and this had been excavated in 1912 by Alfred Cox. And he had various ideas about what he thought was happening at this villa. It's an amazing villa site, really, really beautiful villa site with an astonishing number of infant burials. He, he calculated or he, he recorded 97 infant burials. That may be a slight exaggeration. I think um, Simon Mays, who has looked at the whole archive again, he's the um, Historic England uh, human osteologist thinks that that he might have slightly exaggerated but even if he did exaggerate it is a, it's a lot it's a lot of small babies to find on a villa site now we do we do find infant burials in domestic settings cox thought it was very odd he said it was you know kind of nefarious activities odd things were happening at night you know these babies were being buried in the dead of night kind of thing and so, uh, and so he saw it as a very sinister thing and i think that nowadays we don't we don't see those infant burials in domestic settings as being sinister at all. They're just that's just that's just part of that that period of Roman culture. Um, and adults or older children and adults may have been buried in the kind of standard out-of-town cemeteries, but children were buried in domestic settings because that was their social sphere. Um, so small infants. So I don't think it's about a kind of hasty disposal of infants. It's it's more about actually that that was what you did with um, the burials of small babies. You still have to explain why there's so many of them. And of course, infant mortality was huge compared with today. I mean, you're talking about hundreds per hundred thousand um, rather than, you know, sort of in single figures per hundred thousand, which is where we're at today in, I should say, the developed world. There's still a huge disparity between the developed world and developing countries but it was even worse you know 2000 years ago still even if there's infant high infant mortality simon mays's calculations based on the length of limb bones so we can we can age tiny babies based on the length of their limb bones and sometimes they, those bones are going to be so small that when you measure them and you and you compare that you look at the tables of, of limb bone length you find that actually they wouldn't have even been term so in other words, they must have died. They must have died early. So they were still fetuses, uh, effectively, rather than babies that had been born. But normally what you would find with natural rates of perinatal mortality, so mortality that happens around the time of birth, is that there's a spread. So there's going to be a spread of infants that are born prematurely and die all the way through to infants that are born when you expect them to be born at 40 weeks of gestation, but sadly die all the way through to, you know, infants that are still dying in the first weeks and, uh, and months after, after being born. So you, you're going to find um, a peak around the point of birth, but it's going to be, it's going to be a, um, a flattened peak. What Simon Mays found at Uden, Roman Villa, was that there was a very high peak um, around the time of birth, which suggests that it's not all natural. There is going to be a background of natural mortality, but the fact that that peak has been raised higher suggests that there's something going on and it suggests that there is infanticide happening on top of uh, natural mortality at that place. Now, if we, when we think about that, I think, again, we, 
it's very easy to fall into stereotypes about the brutality of the Romans and, you know, they didn't care about babies and they're, they're, you know, they're practicing infanticide left, right and center. And again, we have to think about who we mean by they. And again, just remember that, you know, these are 97 infants that have died with 97 different stories, 97 different mothers that, you know, some of you may have, may have lost their babies who they, you know, who, who they wanted and, and loved some of them may have been infanticides and they may have been infanticides carried out by women who were desperate and knew that they couldn't afford to have a child. So you've got to think about all of the kind of circumstances that could lead to that happening. And of course, in Roman times, there were no safe abortions. And so infanticide is, I suppose, it's serving a, a, a purpose. It's serving a need in society, which is also um, served in our society by abortion and that's you know that's why it's so horrific when we see the rolling back of abortion laws and that you know the potential I mean it's just I can't believe that in the 21st century that it's suddenly looking as though um, abortion is going to be potentially difficult in the United States we know what happens in those cases we know that this means that more women will seek unsafe abortions that more women will die um, and we, you know, we know that that probably will drive up rates of infanticide as well. I think it's fair to say that, that something that runs through your, your, all of your work is is this real decision to put empathy at its heart. Uh, you really force us to take the perspectives of the mothers that may have been going through unthinkably painful decisions. And then you move very clearly to talk about to today. And, and there's that statistic that will stay with me for a long time, which is that infants under the age of 12 months are the most at risk of homicides in England and Wales than any other age group, which just blew my mind. You mentioned just that Roe v. Wade, uh, or you alluded to it, uh, and this idea that the precarity of mothers is, is really easy to fall into if we don't stand up for their rights and we don't empathize for them. Do you think that if we did have more empathy for the past, we made that an explicit goal and we saw these people that we're digging up as people rather than bones or just historical characters, that we'd be better able to employ empathy today and maybe in the future, uh, empathy as a, as a tool learning from the past? I, I suppose so. I mean, I, I, I think that, again, it's a, you know, it's a, just a, it's a, <laughs> I suppose it goes to, again goes to the roots of of humanism for me, uh, and the fact that you've got to look at individuals and you've got to try and understand where they're coming from, and you've got to have that empathy and understanding for for ways that people are behaving, and you know not force people into difficult situations, you know, and and I suppose looking looking at the past like that and seeing seeing you know how first of all how how infant mortality was you know so rife makes us extremely grateful for all the advances in um in obstetrics and midwifery that there have been since then and we're in you know we're in much better place uh, when it comes to all of that but i think you know that that idea of giving women the choice over their what they're doing with their own bodies is is incredibly important so the story of of these infants bring up a value and, and they, they bring you on to arguably the key thesis statement uh, that you mentioned, which which is that they are 97 different stories that we can't stereotype or, or caricature people in the past, that they are all diverse. The thing is, you also say earlier on in the book that humans are creatures of imagination, quote, we love stories. Um, and, and it's fair to say that stories that are nuanced are the hardest to tell. 
right? Like we like three act structures. We like simple characters and motivations, uh, the needs, wants dichotomy. So you have these two forces, you know, human beings love imagination and stories, but we also need to respect nuance and complexity. Do you ever feel like you're fighting against uh, a sort of uphill battle for nuance, especially maybe working in TV where, you know, three act structures is, is definitely there and, and you must have producers asking, can you just make this simple? Can you just have a baddie or a goodie? You know, with the television, I don't feel as though I'm fighting anything and I feel as though I've learned so much by working in television. And I certainly feel, I was talking about public engagement at the university. I work at the University of Birmingham last week and I was talking to people in music and arts about it and the, the, the need for the story. And I think that as a scientist working, you're starting to work in public engagement. It took me a while actually to, to really engage with that. Uh, and to and to be open to learning from, I suppose, people who who had more of a kind of arts and humanities background, and I, and I really think that it's important for for scientists to engage with people from other disciplines because we can we can learn so much in that way. I think I've become a better teacher by thinking about narrative in my lectures, for instance. You know, a lecture isn't simply a bunch of facts that you're throwing at your students. You've you've got your students they're a, they're a captive audience poor things um unless they're unless you're doing a remote lecture on their own zoom and they can go off and do something else um but if they're in a if they're in a lecture theater, they're generally speaking a, a captive audience and i think that the you know the, the onus is then on me to um to tell them an entertaining story and it and, and, I, and I, do, I mean that you know it must be entertaining i have to keep their interest um for an hour i shouldn't expect them to just sit there and listen to me just kind of giving them a bunch of facts so I do think I've become a better teacher because of thinking about that, thinking about that through writing, but also particularly through working with some fantastic television producers. There is, I, I, if I think back to when I first started doing it, and particularly, you know, not just doing more kind of directly observational stuff like Time Team or, or Digging for Britain, but um, working on some of the big series that I've worked on where there does have to be a re- you know, really solid story. So things like Incredible Human Journey, Origins of Us, Ice Age giants, where you that they have to, you know, you have to keep people engaged for for the hour that each program is, and um, I think in in those cases there is a there's a there's certainly a compromise between how much nuance and how much I suppose uncertainty you allow in, and then and how much you're going to be railroaded along one particular narrative. And and I think you know it is it is a compromise, but I think um, it's I think when you you can you know when it works, you know when it works. I mean, you can you can easily get lost in all the details if you if you just you know if you go off down all those rabbit holes, and if you go into all of that nuance, you can you can easily get lost in all of that. So yes, it, yes, it is a balance. Uh, you can I mean you can end up just losing track of the story completely and rambling, as I probably am doing in this answer. Um, or you can try to have some kind of structure there and allow yourself to go off and explore alternatives, allow yourself up to go off and, uh, and explore a different hypothesis, for instance. Um, and I think also you can be quite honest with people when you're when you're presenting science and be honest about when you don't know what the answer is uh, or be honest about levels of certainty. And, and perhaps we don't do that enough. I think there's a tendency to report on science as though it's very cut and dried and that, you know, once you've got some kind of answer, that's it and it's not going to change. And I think that's been interesting over the course of the pandemic. 
because obviously the story has changed as we've got more information. And it's very uncomfortable if that is then covered in the media in in such a way that, you know, suggests that all oh, scientists are changing their minds. And it's like, yes, they're changing their minds because more evidence is coming in. And that's how science works. It's const- It's always a process. We're constantly changing our minds. And that's a good thing. We don't very often find that we do complete U-turns because it's normally that the evidence is slightly kind of shifting rather mm-hmm. than making us go, oh, hang on a minute. We seem to have been going in completely the wrong direction. Let's head off in this direction instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a better understanding, you know, if we if we can present science in that way, then hopefully people will understand better that that science is a process and also that they can be engaged in it and that they can yeah. think, oh, hang on a minute. There's several hypotheses here. Which one do I think is the most likely? So last question for me before we move on to the brilliant questions that are already coming in uh, from our audience, which is there's a moment where you describe uh, Mark Redknapp, who's another colleague of yours, and, and this wistful point where you say um, he has a note of longing in his voice. He'd still like to go back out and, and find more. That doesn't not sound like a drug, Alice. You know, It sort of sounds addictive. You, you go back out to the bones, you, you go back down to the archives, you talk about the Crick project, this, this idea of like, I, I need to know the answers, I, I need to keep going. Do you ever think that you could go cold turkey? Or, or do you think you'll be out in the field with a trowel when you're 90 or, or, or digging in the archives until you're 95? I think there is a, there's definitely an addictive element to it. I mean, I think that archaeology itself is just exciting. It doesn't it doesn't matter what you're finding. You're finding something that's been buried in the ground for a long time, hundreds, thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. And even if that object, that thing, whatever it is you're finding, is not going to completely rewrite the history books or be completely groundbreaking, it's the first time anyone's seen it. And there's something utterly alluring about that and and that's why I think you know Digging for Britain is it I love making Digging for Britain we're heading off next week to start filming and I'm so looking forward to it because it must be the only series that the BBC commissions on the basis of knowing nothing about the, what's going to be in it you know it's kind of like <laughs> we've got vague ideas about where we're going and which sites we're going to be going to but we don't actually know what we're going to see and that is just so exciting yeah. Um, and I and I feel so privileged to you know to present that and to travel around and and visit all these archaeological sites and uh, and see that evidence emerging out of the ground um, and actually doing it as well. So people are interested in doing it, get in touch with you know look at the look at the CBA, the Council for British Archaeology webpage is a great um, and 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 they will flag up lots of lots of community digs that you can get involved in and that kind of thing because there's something really lovely about just getting your hands dirty. So that leads brilliantly to, to Lucy's question, which is very simple. It's, it's how do I get into all of this? That's the answer. You know, go to the the, the CBA website, uh, and it's actually there's there's a moment in the acknowledgements where you mention uh, trailblazers, which is which is a brilliant project that aims to to lift women up in in archaeology. Could you speak about that a little bit? Uh, I think it deserves a little bit more attention. Yes. Well, at the weekend, I was uh, on Saturday. I was at Lyme Regis helping to unveil the new statue of Mary Anning. Uh, he's a magnificent trailblazer. What a what a fantastic pun! So that campaign is all about, as you say, um, making those women of the digging sciences, paleontology, uh, archaeology, other areas of uh, of earth sciences, um, visible. And I think that there's been a double whammy. One thing is that as you go back further into the past, yes, there were fewer women than than men working in these areas, but we've also selectively forgotten them. 
And so it's really wonderful to be able to make them visible again. And that fantastic statue by the sculptor Denise Dustin is just wonderful now striding out on the seafront at Lyme Regis. And one of the modern female paleontologists who was there talking about that at the at the unveiling was Tori Herridge, who's one of the people behind Trailblazers. Um, if you've not heard of it before, I am saying trowel as in an archaeological <laughs> trowel. It's not just my strange Bristol accent. Trailblazers, go and have a look at the website. And there's lots and lots of information there and lots of lots of lovely biographies of amazing mm. women in archaeology, um, earth sciences, paleontology. Absolutely. So everyone go go check that out. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, So another question from Martin, uh, who asks, uh, burial and especially cremation were incredibly difficult until recently. You know, even rain could destroy a cremation. Do you think we lose something in forgetting that? You speak very briefly uh, in the book about ustors, um, the idea that experts had to be in charge of it. Uh, it It was complicated, right? Yeah, especially in the Roman period, it was very bad luck to be semi ustum to be to be left half burned that was not a good funeral uh so you you would have a you'd have a good ustor who would basically choose a good day in terms of the weather build a fantastic pyre and you need a you need a serious amount of kindling to um to burn a body um and they would be responsible for making sure that the body is is properly burned so yes and of course i don't know how much longer we'll be doing cremation in britain actually because we have switched, obviously, from burial to, to cremation over a century. I mean, that's an extraordinary change. And that's entirely economic, I think. Even though there's been increasing secularisation in Britain over the, over the 20th century, that change really has been driven by just a need to dispose of bodies. And so there was a switch from, you know, more than, well, 99% burial to um, more than 90% cremation now in Britain. But of course, it's all done in gas-fired crematoria. Uh, so it's, it is deeply unsustainable. It is, it is not um, the kind of thing that we can carry on doing when we're trying to ca- tackle climate change. Um, so there are lots of other potential solutions, which I do discuss at the end, the last chapter of Ancestors, actually, including um, new facilities which are popping up for being dissolved and used as fertiliser, which I think is probably the most sustainable, if not the most romantic way of leaving. I don't know. I, I think there's there's a certain romance to human mulch. You know, you get a tree and um, anyway, moving on. Um, Frank asks, uh, what is the one thing that we were all taught at school about the Anglo-Saxons, which you wish we hadn't done? That's, that's probably quite a long list. Oh, that they're a group of people. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do go off a bit on one in the book about this because I think that it's very easy to parcel up the past into these you know, easily digestible lumps and we go, the Romans, and then they went, and then the Anglo-Saxons arrive. And it's like, hang on, who arrives? What? Most of the people in Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries would have been the descendants of people who'd been there in the 3rd and 4th at the end of the Roman period. The Roman army leaves, certainly, but who else leaves? Most people just stay here. And, and then if we've got some incomers, some new people coming over from, I don't know, Belgium, the Netherlands, 
um, Denmark, how many? And, you know, really how much of an influence is that is that having? And is it is it just a few elite people coming over or is it more broad than that? The Venerable Bede would have us believe that, you know, there's great hordes of people coming over. Ancient DNA is starting to look at this. And I don't we're not seeing evidence of a massive population replacement um, in those centuries. We're seeing something much more subtle. And we'll get a better handle on that when the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project is, uh, has yielded some more of its results. But yes, I think this, I think somehow we've got to be able to teach it in such a way that it's simple at primary school, certainly, but that it, it hints that there is complexity there later on. Um, it's a little, I suppose it's a little bit like the way we get taught about atoms and that, you know, you go from learning that electrons are you know sort of circling in orbits to you know by the time you by the time you get to a levels you're talking about probability clouds of uh, of electrons and it's probably a similar thing in history that we can start off with those simple ideas but we've got to realize that that's just a way a way of describing the past which doesn't actually reflect the real complexity you're not a fan of the venerable bead or are you Uh, there's a point at which you say uh, he suddenly gets very specific about dates (laughs) <laughs> very specific about dates which he doesn't seem to have any sources for so yeah I mean I am a fan of his you know he is he writes brilliantly he's given us a lot of history it's just that there's a lot of myth in there as well all woven in and we have to try to disentangle it in the same way that I'm not a fan of Gildas because that is just a you know his uh, the ruin of Britain is just a polemical sermon so I'm not a fan of it if you're taking it as a historical document and uh, and very objective because it's not objective at all as a polemic sermon it's wonderful I mean so actually jumping off that the the, the fact that there are limited sources that, that focus on usually elites or ideologies that are quite high up in the class rankings um, uh, there's this quite romantic notion I think that you mentioned a couple of times that there's this farmer standing in a field and, and the Romans pass through Londinium and he's like, okay. And then the Romans leave and he's just doing his own thing. And then the Angles and the Dukes and the Saxons come and he just keeps farming in his field. And, you know, that there is a class element here, right? Inherently that, that we do leave out certain people because they don't have fancy burials. And that sort of class dynamic is something we really have to grapple with and, and remember all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially during that Roman period, because uh, and no, probably all the way through. I think yeah. you're right. Uh, you know, the, where we've got the stuff, that's people who are materially wealthy. And um, so, you know, when people are buried with an awful lot of stuff, well, I tell you, yeah, now I'm going to argue with myself because sometimes it isn't. And I'm very interested in Hugh Wilmot's um, idea about why people are buried with lots of brooches and it's about the seasons. So it's basically you're just burying in the Anglo-Saxon period, you're burying somebody in all their clothes. And if it's summertime, they'll only have one or two breeches because they're just holding their dress up. If it's wintertime, they might have five because they're wearing several layers of cloaks and things which are all pinned on with breeches. And therefore, it's not representing how wealthy somebody is at all. It's just representing if they were buried in, in summer or winter. That's something fascinating that I'd not thought of before I spoke to Hugh. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the Roman period, our eye is drawn by the big villas with their beautiful mosaics, like that amazing Rutland mosaic that we had on Digging for Britain last year. And, you know, wonderful bathhouses and and fortresses and all of that kind of thing. And then you go, hang on a minute, let's go out into rural Britain. And how much of an impact is it making there? Yes, we're getting little bits and pieces of Roman culture, but um, there's a fantastic book by Stuart Laycock and uh, Miles Russell, Un-Roman Britain. There's, you know, there, there really is, uh, there really is, if, we, if we're being objective about it, there's this kind of veneer of Romanitas, which descends over Britain. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in the fifth century 
is that Britain has left that kind of economic union of of the Roman Empire and political union of the of the Roman Empire, and that we're just starting to get regional differences emerging again. We're starting to kind of see what was there before, but what was kind of overlain by this kind of rather crude overlay. Oh, Hugh talks about it so beautifully. He basically says in the Roman period, it's like Amazon Prime. You could get anything from anywhere. You know, it's a, it, and those, so, so regional kind of local differences are obscured by the fact that you could, you've got these amphorae of wine that have come from the mm. Mediterranean and you can, you can order in building materials from all over the place. And I'd just like to, to, to finish on, on the point that you just mentioned there, you know, the fact that it's, it's just the seasons as, as an answer. And I think that going back to the earlier on in our conversation about the, the choir, um, where there's this, the person who was buried is, is looking on in this imaginary sort of ghostly realm going, why the, why the hell are they singing that song? You know, why are they, why are they looking at that cruciform brooch? You know, I, I didn't care about that. I just threw that in there. You know, I was just wearing it. There is a potential here that we are obsessing over things that they really didn't care about. You know, the people who were buried, it was just accidental and it fell in there, or maybe they didn't, they didn't even mind how they were buried. And I suppose there's, there's this sort of humility that, that is baked into this whole journey that we need to keep in mind, right? Yeah, I think it's always important to think about that because when you see something and you know it's a ritual, I think we do tend to think that it's being done in a very thoughtful way. And again, that some people would have been doing those things in a very thoughtful way. Other people would have been doing them simply, as you say, because it's what you do. It's what my parents did. It's what the rest of my family do. Um, and, I, and I think particularly with funerary rituals, that is what we do. Although I think we're starting, uh, and, I th- and again, coming back to humanism, I think that we're seeing a diversity of approaches to how you do a funeral now because because people are breaking away from that and saying, hang on a minute, I'm not just going to fit into that kind of formulaic idea of this is what a funeral is and we'll just drop somebody's name in at a particular point. Let's do something which is a bit more meaningful and comes from you know a celebration of that person's life. So it's all about that person rather than being a kind of formula where you can where you can drop drop a name in. It's tricky, isn't it? Because I, I mean, sometimes it's very useful to have a formula that you know maybe that if you're if you're doing that, if you're faced with putting together a funeral, that it's actually a very useful thing to have a template that's there ready to use. But yeah, again, that kind of thoughtfulness. Not every ritual is done with a great deal of thought. Well, I mean, your book has been done with a more than a great deal of thought, and I'm very sorry to say that we are we are out of time. So thank you so much, Alice. Please. Everyone uh, go and check out Buried uh, and do check out the Trailblazers who we talked about earlier. Thank you for all of your brilliant questions and for for tuning in. And uh, Alice, I'll give the final word to you. Thank you very much for having me at the How To Academy. It's been fantastic. What a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. This episode of the podcast starred Alice Roberts. It was produced and presented by Luke Lena Parrott. And the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. Alice appears in another episode of the show, courtesy of New Humanist magazine. You can find it in our archive or at howtoacademy.com. Join us next week for a special Bloomsday episode celebrating the centenary of Joyce's Ulysses with Colin Tabine. Until then, thanks for listening.